Welcome to another edition of the Dynasty Blueprint. I'm your host, Ryan McDowell, joined as always by Matt Williamson. Matt, how's it going today? It's, it's combine time. Yeah, it is. It's combine time. Pretty psyched about it. Uh, things are going very well. How about yourself? Doing well. Excited to see this, uh, this new batch of rookies work out. And it seems like every, every February, our opinion changes on some of these guys once we see them in shorts, running the 40 and doing some of these other events at the, at the combine. And I think for the first time ever, I believe you're, you're there. Is that right? Yes. It's not my first time. I mean, when I was with the Browns, I was, I went to the combine and I think either my first or second year with ESPN, I went down with McShay and his crew. And, but my favorite combine story was the first time I walked through the doors, there was myself and another young scout that we'd both just been hired that year, our first year in the league. And Paul Warfield was our uh, was also on staff, and he's a great guy. We had gotten to know Paul, obviously, working you know with the Browns as, as a scout. So the three of us are walking in, and you know it's me and these two young bucks in the Hall of Famer strolling through the doors of the Combine. And then Joe Green comes from around the corner, who's scouting for the Steelers. Everyone knows him from Pittsburgh. I mean, to me, he's the all-time greatest Steeler. He comes up, puts his arm around Warfield, and the two of us, us two young bucks, go strolling in with Joe Green and Paul Warfield. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so you kind of have an idea of what to expect then, but you're going, you're going this time in a different role, I guess. The reason I'm going down is because I've been doing a lot of work with Steelers Radio Network. So I'm going to set up, I guess there's a, you know, on Radio Row – and do a three-hour show every day with a bunch of the, the players on, scouts and coaches from around the league. So we'll be talking to a lot of people. It'll be great. All right. Well, uh, we've got a great guest today to talk about some of these specific uh, events and drills that are going on at the Combine. We've got Kevin Cole, uh, who does some work for Rotoviz and Fantasy Labs. And I've been, at, Kevin, I've actually been reading up on some of your older work from about a year ago where you, uh, you wrote about all these drills in a series called Combine Drills That Matter. You did one for running back, wide receiver, and tight end. Uh, so first of all, thanks for joining us today, and, and thanks for that content as well. Well, thanks for having me. And yeah, it's good. We're, we're getting up into the season where uh, these were some of the most popular articles I had last year. I think once you know, the Combine comes out, there's a lot of controversy about how important it is, how important it isn't, which drills are important, which aren't. So you know, I was trying to use some pretty uh, somewhat simple tools as far as in the area of machine learning, but of course some, some tools to try to figure out exactly and pinpoint for particular positions if any drills are more important than others. Before we get to some of those specific drills for each position, I know one other uh, article you wrote last year around this time was concerning the combine versus pro days and, and which one we can really trust, which one gives us more information. What did you learn from that article? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because obviously there's a little bit of a bias because the, the guys who are invited to the combine, if you're not invited to the combine, uh, you're probably going to have a much more difficult time of success just because there are limited invitations and if you're just on a pro day. So I tried to limit it to uh, guys who ran drills at both of them. And I mean, just long story short, it ended up being uh, much more significant what they were running at their combine times as opposed to their pro day. I mean, there's, there's a few different factors that are going into it. I mean, one of the biggest things, though, is that at the Combine, you know, everything is standardized. Everyone's running the same drill on the same track. Uh, there's no wind conditions. It's indoors, all of that different stuff. 
Uh, the timers are all are all are all the same. And when we're talking about you know three tenths, uh, three hundredths of a second or five hundredths of a second, it may not seem like much, but it makes a huge difference in uh, particular positions, especially something like the running back, whether or not someone will have success. So the pro day times, you know, they might get a little bit of friendly treatment on their on their home fields. I think that's a great point, Kevin. And just from my experience scouting, um, there is a difference. You know that obviously height, weight, vertical, bench, those things don't matter. I mean, you could do that in Alaska. You could do it anywhere. I mean, they're going to be the same, but you're right. I mean, there are notoriously fast tracks, you know, that you learn that, boy, Ohio State's track seems a lot faster than others. Or uh, is this one 38 and a half yards or is it 40? You know, I mean, just, that's a joke, obviously. Or is it downhill? Or, you know, like you said, wind and uh, weather and things like that matter whenever you're breaking down something to the, the hundredth of a second. To have everybody all in the same building with the same timers on the same track is apples to apples, and I do think that's important. And that goes for the you know the shuttles and things too. We want to start today at the quarterback position, and, and Kevin, I know you didn't cover the cover the quarterbacks in your series last year. I'm assuming because simply the the drills just aren't as important for them. Uh, I think everybody's there to see them throw. And it sounds like we're going to get to see most of those big name quarterbacks throw this year. And Kevin or Matt, this is for either one of you. When you're watching those quarterbacks perform at the combine, what are you really looking for as a scout, as a dynasty owner, or really in any, in any position? Well, maybe I'll I'll jump in real fast. Yeah. I mean, it was a little more difficult to do the analysis because you're dealing with uh, a much smaller sample and, I think the the probability of success is much more highly influenced by what draft position that they're taken at. I mean, the quarterback's probably the only position where um, you know a, a lower probability of injury to a starter, and the starter could literally you know take every snap for an entire season. So you just may never have a chance to get in there and and play. So it's a little bit more difficult than it is with running backs or wide receivers, where you can get um, you know some probability of success. I mean, I, I will say though, for quarterbacks, there are others who have done analysis on it and a few things that are that have been consistent i mean it, it depends on 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 the prospect but i mean for instance someone like uh deshaun watson this year i mean i'm just really interested to see kind of where he'll weigh in something like that you know if he if he comes in at maybe 210 pounds 205 pounds something like that as opposed to 220 i think that's a huge difference things like that so so there have been some some people have pointed to that um, to three cone time to even vertical and some as, as mattering. And I think more and more in the NFL athleticism matters at the quarterback position, not necessarily to be elite, but to get you, you know, an average NFL starter. I mean, someone like Tyrod Taylor is a perfect example. I mean, he puts up so many, uh, he puts, puts up so much value with his legs that he's not a very good thrower, but if you have that athleticism, I think it's becoming more and more important in the NFL. So I wouldn't completely fade it for quarterbacks, but it's probably not as important as it is for some of the, uh, the other skill positions. No, no question. I'd like to expand on it a little bit too. And going back to pro day versus combine for a quarterback, it's night and day in terms of, you know, for those that don't know at a pro day, the quarterback scripts every throw. Okay. I'm going to make 50 throws, 10 digs, three outs, whatever to the, to the receivers. He chooses in his building at his own pace, like against air. I mean, the ball should never hit the ground. I mean, there should be no incompletions or one incompletion or a drop or something. At the combine, he has no. I mean, he knows what they're going to ask him, but he's just met the dudes he's throwing to. Like completion percentage doesn't matter to me at all at the combine, um, and both are small samples. However, in the world of scouting, and I don't even have a wonderful reason why, 
there is a lot to learn about watching a quarterback throw live, you know, to be next to them. Like, for example, I remember watching Jay Cutler on tape at, at Vanderbilt and going, boy, he's got a great arm. You know, he's really impressive. And then you go down and you see him at Senior Bowl, and it's like, whoa, you know, this guy has a rare arm. I mean, I think there's a much better judge of velocity, how the ball comes out of his hands, how well he controls it when you see them face-to-face. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Before we get into some of these other positions, Kevin, and I know you covered in your series a year ago, the running backs, the wide receivers, and the tight ends. Just kind of explain the process that you went through regardless of the position. Sure. So I, I looked at any uh, anyone who went to the combine, and these are only guys who actually played a down in the NFL because I didn't want to bias it for for, for lower, lower guys who had, like I said, no chance of success. So anyone who played in the NFL, went to the combine, um, took their measurables, and then tested it against. And uh, the outcome that I was looking against is whether or not uh, in fantasy football scoring, whether or not for a wide receiver they were a top 24 wide receiver within their first three years, and for a running back they were a top 12 running back within their first three years. And I was measuring that kind of on a, on a binary outcome, calling them a success or not a success, if they achieved that or not. And so that was what I'm solving for. And then what I did was I took all of the, of the players uh, at a particular position, got all of their, their combine uh, measurables, threw it in, and then essentially it went through something where it's called, uh, you either call it a regression tree or a decision tree, depending upon what you're solving for. And basically what it does is it looks at all the past results and then it tries to fit a, what, like I said, it's called a tree. So it starts off at the, it's kind of like reverse. It starts off at the top with everyone and then it splits the data sample based upon what it's finding is the most uh, significant or explanatory variable for why, uh, for, for why someone is successful or not. And then it splits again and then it splits it again. And the assumption here is that maybe these things aren't completely linear. Like maybe, you know, all, I mean, maybe, you know, if a particular player, if he runs an extremely fast 40, but, you know, he's, his weight is very low, something like that. Uh, it might be better to run a slower 40, but at a higher weight, things like that. It, it's just looking at all the different variables and trying to fit them into buckets on based upon past success. And then what you're hoping for is you can use that and gain some insight and, you know, apply it to guys that are coming out this year and, and try to figure out who may have a better chance of success than conventional wisdom. And I love this type of analysis because, um, you know, you're removing all your biases. Whatever you thought of as important beforehand, you let the data tell the story and, and we can really learn from that. Let's look at the running back position first. Uh, I think in really across the whole weekend of the combine, it's, it's the 40-yard the dash that gets the most attention but it seems like your your study says that at least at the running back position that that attention is deserved. Is that correct? Yeah, that is that is correct. Um, the forty seems to be overwhelmingly the most important thing at the running back position. Uh, I mean, uh, other people could could judge from you know kind of on a film basis why that why that may be be the case. But you know, being able to get to the second level, things like that through through the line are obviously extremely important. It's much more of an instinctual uh, position. So. Yeah, my my analysis showed that essentially the the top split. So when you're first going to split the uh, all of the different running back candidates, it's at the four five range. So if you're below four five, that puts you into a more of an elite category. And then from there, there are some other drills that go on, and then and eventually there's actually a split whether or not you're under a four four, uh, which is obviously a, a pretty rare time to that that can help you out also. 
But even on the on the other side, like I said, what what's good about this analysis is it shows that even if you don't have that elite forty time, if you have a very strong three cone time, and now it says below um, six eight, which is which is really good. Um, if you're below that time, like some other guys have been in the past, like a Le'Veon Bell, a Doug Martin, some other people who have been, you know, some bigger backs who are very agile and don't quite get under that four or five mark, that you can also have success. But but forty is by far and away the the biggest the biggest thing for running backs. So when we when we're watching these these runs this weekend, if you know if you do have that running back that does not break four or five, runs in a four six or or maybe even higher, it's not necessarily a situation where we write them off. The next step is now let's look at their three cone. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I, that's what I'm saying. And what I would say is, I mean, for, for my opinion about the running back position is, you know, it's not that I would write someone off, but I don't know if I would spend, let's say, like an, an elite sort of draft capital on someone who who doesn't who doesn't meet those athletic measurables because you, it, it's more difficult to to figure out true talent. I mean, very often you have the top running backs who are coming out; they're probably very talented, and that's why they're playing for these top schools. But you often see them coming from, you know, Alabama or Ohio State or or one of these big schools because they put up huge numbers. But it's it's difficult to separate the system from the player, so it just gives that little extra insurance there that someone is really able to to, to run that fast. Then you know, okay, that checks the box, and you know maybe differentiate someone. Like uh, like an Ezekiel Elliott, you know, he he ran under a four or five last year, and he was extremely fast, and that was that was pretty good. Uh, I mean, Trent Richardson didn't run, I believe, at the combine. He ran pretty well at his at his pro day, but like I said, we don't really know what's going on there. But I think a good example in the past, a guy who's ended up being somewhat successful, but a guy like Mark Ingram is probably a guy that I wouldn't have have wanted to spend that kind of draft capital on, just because his his athletic measurables weren't that great. Kevin, I kind of look at it this way with the forties and running backs. And obviously it's different if you're 235 pound running back or 185 pound running back, you know, I mean, clearly, but I almost look at it like I don't want them to be slow as opposed to, I want them to be fast. You know what I mean? Like how often does even Ezekiel Elliott, I mean, do they take it 70 yards in the NFL and just run away from everybody? I mean, like Barry Sanders did that and there's a hand and Chris Johnson does that, but usually long runs are made in the first 15 yards or so. You know, it's not like he's a, a, a road runner that hits the edge and just outruns 11 defenders at the NFL level. So I kind of look at it like as long as you're not slow, I'm pretty good with your 40 time. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a good way to look at it. I think there, you may want to, to subset for guys – in college who have who've lived off of breaking off those long runs i mean a good, good example yeah. is, is is like melvin level competition comes in big there yeah I you mean, know like if you're yeah, the fastest dude on the field by 0.2 seconds you're going to get a lot of artificial yardage right i mean someone like melvin gordon i mean he's he, whether you want to call him a success or not i mean he's technically been a success by the metrics that i laid out because he had a good year last year but he's been a pretty inefficient runner uh, in the nfl i don't know if he's if he's impressed a lot of people, but you know, he broke off a lot of long runs in college and then he came into the combine. He ran in the four fives, which I think was pretty disappointing. People were expecting him to run much better than that. So I think if you have someone like him who doesn't do that, then you're more concerned than if uh, you know, Derek Henry or someone like that doesn't, doesn't run below the four or five mark. And at the same point, I mean, you've seen guys like, you know, obviously guys like Chris Johnson have been very successful in the NFL that ran ridiculously fast forties, but that enabled them to break off those long runs. Cause without those long runs, they just wouldn't have been successful in the NFL. 
so Kevin, if they're if a running back is running over four five, a three cone over six eight, their chances of of success, at least by this determination of, of a top twelve season in their first three years, it's it's almost nil, right? Well, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say it's almost nil. No, I mean it, it, it depends. It depends. I mean, we, we don't really know. Like I said, draft position is not placed into this analysis. So um, if someone has a high draft position, I think it's fine. And then also what, what Matt had mentioned, if someone is – I mean, if someone's a big guy, so like like Derrick Henry last year, um, he didn't run under a 4-5, but he's, I mean, he's so big that I think looking at measurables like speed score matters quite a bit. Now, weight didn't happen to come out in this analysis – um, but then again, I was looking at PPR scoring, so that could have something to do with it. But weight has been found to be very significant in, in others, and I, I believe that it is. So I, w- I would definitely weight adjust a, a 40 time. And if you're on, the, if you're on that, that threshold where you're, where you're close but not quite there, um, if you're someone like Henry who's, who's well above your average running back, I think that's fine. I think that's a good point because what was Derrick Henry, like 6'3", 245 in that neighborhood? Is that you know within five pounds and an inch, give or take? Yeah, yeah, he was, he was, yeah, he was an outlier as far as anyone at that position. Yeah, no doubt. So, if there's an three four outside linebacker that's six three two forty five or two fifty or in that neighborhood, and they run a four five one, we're all going, "Holy cow, is he fast!" But if Derrick Henry does it, you go, "Eh, okay." You know, like it's all relative because of the RB or the LB next to your name. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's, that's how I would look at it. And once again, you know, going into this year, I think uh, a guy like, uh, like McCaffrey is probably, Christian McCaffrey is probably the number one guy where I'm going to be glued to see what he runs in a 40. And if he doesn't have a very strong, you know, close to a 4-4, I would be a little bit concerned just because you're hoping to get that dynamic, uh, long play uh, sort, of, sort of performance out of him. Um, and that, that's going to be that's just going to be more difficult at the NFL to get to get past and through the second level if you can't if you can't run a pretty strong forty. Are you glued to McCaffrey because you're worried he's not going to run well, or do you just think he has to to be the prospect you want him to be? I think a little bit of both. Um, okay, I, I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure he's going to run well. I mean, we don't have a whole lot on him. I mean, I looked uh, and tried to get some you know hundred meter dash times from when he was at high school and things like that, and. Uh, I mean, I've seen – I saw some people comp him to maybe someone like a Jamal Charles, and Charles was just much faster. He was much faster as a sprinter. Of course, Charles, you know, ran in the 4-3, so he was tremendously fast. Um, so I, I think I'm a little bit worried that, that maybe he'll come in, you know, in the, in the high 4-4s, four, four which isn't bad at all. I mean, it's, it could be very successful. But I guess for someone with his big playability, I, I would, you would hope that it's, it, that it's maybe a slightly better than that. I've seen some Reggie Bush comps with – with McCaffrey too, which I, I just don't quite get. He he does have that game breaking uh, ability. We saw it a lot with Stanford, especially in his sophomore year. But I still don't I don't see Reggie Bush type speed with him. I think it's easy to forget what Reggie Bush was like at Ohio or at USC. He was unbelievable. Right. Uh, again, for for either of you guys, who are some other running backs besides McCaffrey? You're really going to be focusing on uh, this weekend as they work out. The name that comes to my mind is is Leonard Fournette. Of course, he has this uh, you know this reputation. He's been viewed as one of the top running backs since even before he got to college. But now there's starting to be some knocks from the you know draft experts from from fantasy players worried about maybe his athleticism. So, what are you hoping for from a guy like Fournette? Uh, I mean, I, I think he would probably be 
second on my list to see what he's actually going to end up running. Um, I kind of like him as a, as a potential value since he's kind of fallen into, he's fallen in some people's eyes. He hasn't looked very good uh, on tape to a lot of people. And there are these stories out there. I'm not sure if it was a, if it was like the spark national championship when he came out of high school or something like that. There were some stories that he, that he was running in the four threes or something like that. I don't, I'm not sure how that's possible, but if he could get, you know, if he, if he could get into the, into the mid four fours, that would be, that would be pretty awesome. And I would be on board um, for, for putting him right up there near the top. A couple guys I'm looking at, and it's more of the, I hope you're not slow category is P Ryan at Oklahoma um, at Texas, Dante Foreman, and the kid at BYU, Jamal Williams, because I, mean, I think they all do good things. What I've seen, but if they're if they come into four six two and they're bigger backs for the most part, you know, I'm a little concerned. Yeah, I, I think right now, you know, it's Cook and Fournette. Uh, that that next tier is McCaffrey and Mixon for most people, and of course, Mixon's a whole different story when it comes to the combine. But then that next tier is, is so deep, and I'm excited to see not necessarily any specific player in that third tier, but I just want to see one of those guys really break out, you know, whether it's Kamara, uh, Kareem Hunt, Jamal Williams, any of those guys, I think this is a good chance for one of those guys to bolster their, their NFL draft stock, obviously, but uh, for us fantasy players could, could really move up into that mid first round range. Yeah, no, I I would totally agree with you there. And I think a lot of time for the, for, for the running back position, while there are a lot of guys I could, I could pick and choose who I like, you're going to have guys who just, you know, destroy the, the combine. And then you really, like I said, for, for, for the running back position, I would start thinking about them. I think some guys that we've seen in the past um, that have come out of nowhere. Um, I mean, it depends on the position. I mean, I was, I was interested to see what someone like Keith Marshall was going to do last year, but then he got injured. Um, you know, there's Daniel Lasco who did really well last year, who, who maybe will do, do okay if he gets a chance to play in New Orleans this year. So I think it's those guys that come out of, in the end that, that will be, that'll come out of nowhere essentially to, to, to become some of the favorites. I think the running back position, I'm willing to just wait and see who these guys are. Um, and especially guys who had big workloads at small schools. I mean, David Johnson was a perfect example of a guy. Where small school guys, I'm less less concerned if they don't come from a pedigree place at, at the running back position than at the wide receiver position. And he was someone who just annihilated the combine and then you know still ended up going in the third round of the NFL draft and was a great value for, for the NFL team. Of course, a great value for anyone who got him on their dynasty roster. I, I don't know if you guys agree or not, but there's, you know, we both, we, all three of us have a lot more work to do on these players. And this does look like an exceptional running back draft class but it doesn't seem like an exceptionally fast one. You know, like I don't think anybody's going to challenge Chris Johnson's record or I don't see a lot of four, three guys or sub four, four guys here. You know, I'm not saying there's somebody that's slow, but it doesn't seem like there's going to be burners on the track. Yeah. I think that's probably true of, of the, of the biggest guys. Although, you know, I, I mean, I mentioned Fortnite. and the only reason I mentioned that maybe these numbers I'm looking at are not, are not accurate, but supposedly, at the Spark National Championship back in 2013, supposedly he ran a 4-3. Now, I'm not sure how that's even possible. That's awesome. Um, so, so you never know. Sometimes it doesn't – you know, these guys, you don't really even realize it uh, on, their, uh, on their game tape and on their film how fast they can be if they're hampered, if they're injured, if there's something else is going on. So I, I think there's some guys that could surprise us. I mean, 
I remember um, two years ago, which was, you know, the extremely deep running back class, everyone kind of disappointed. I mean, Gurley didn't run because he was injured, but, but Gordon uh, kind of disappointed. Some of the other ones like Abdullah was really poor for his size up in the four, six range, something like that. So, and I think it's, it's actually translated to, to the fact those guys haven't been as good as what you were hoping, at least, at least some of the time. So, so it'll be really interesting to see what, what guys are going to run this year. So of these four, fantasy positions that that we really care about would you say the combine matters most for the running backs I mean I I think so um that's that's just what what I've found and I think the the biggest thing is that it's just difficult it's it's difficult to it's probably more difficult to scout someone as a running back um just because their performance I mean you're, you're literally turning around and handing someone the ball so you can you can kind of manufacture production for some guys versus other guys, and there may be guys that you just don't see enough because they're in small schools, or there may be guys who are you know further down on the depth chart um, who are actually have the athleticism to succeed at the NFL level, and sometimes that's not you know that's just not rewarded on the on the college level as much um, because of how they practice or or some something else that may be holding them down that they can get out of that once they get uh, an opportunity at the next level. Kevin, looking at the wide receiver position next, uh, you found that it's it's actually weight that's maybe the first important key rather than one of the drills. Yeah, I mean, there, there's always been this this kind of controversy in in fantasy football and in dynasty and other places and wide receiver size and what does it mean and what what it doesn't mean. And of course, you know, I wouldn't just say you you only want to draft the the larger players versus the others, but th- there's a reason that a prototypical wide receiver one in our heads is someone who is, you know, taller, but I don't think the height matters as much as how much they weigh. So, yeah, I mean, it it kind of finds that you want these guys who are, you know, above, clearly above 200, more likely above, once you get above 210 and 220, that's kind of your your sweet spot there. Now, at the the top of the dynasty rankings now, of course, you have guys like Antonio Brown and Odell Beckham, who are smaller guys. Um, But right along with them, you probably have more guys, at least if you're going to dip back a bit further, where you're going to say, you know, who are your Mike Evans, who are your uh, the Allen Robinsons, your Des Bryants, your Julio Jones, who was an absolute freak at the Combine. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just more likely that you can become that guy as, as, a larger, as a larger wide receiver. And then, you know, your Antonio Browns can happen, but it's just less likely. And even for someone like Antonio Brown, I mean, who knows if he wasn't playing with Big Ben, what sort of stats he would have. So I, I think guys who are bigger can um, transcend their circumstances at quarterback and offense just to become that big target and be, and become a top, you know, wide receiver one, wide receiver two, once they get, uh, in, in, once they get to the next level. Kevin, do you think this, this applies more to fantasy than if NFL head coaches said this player was a success or not, correct? Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot more that goes on at the, at the NFL level than just, fantasy football. I mean, fantasy translates fairly well if you're just talking about a stats-based type of argument. I mean, I think if you looked at the top guys, like a lot of those names that I mentioned, which would be the top guys in fantasy football, those are probably the same names that you're going to hear from sure. from NFL GMs. I mean, I think the, the one type of player who probably doesn't – well, not the one type, but a type of player who doesn't get enough credit maybe from fantasy football who – does more at the NFL level is perhaps someone who stretches the field and doesn't necessarily see the ball that much, but the effect that they have on the defense, but things like that are, you know, are, are difficult to, to judge. So I think fantasy football is a, is a good way of looking at it, but it's not the, it's not the be all end all of what an NFL head coach is looking for. 
my point was just because you mentioned size being so important that in the fantasy world, we all know that touchdowns are supremely important. You know, I mean, they're weighted more than they would be through, you know, an NFL coach's eyes. And obviously everybody wants people to score touchdowns, but on our fantasy team, you really want guys to score touchdowns. And if they don't, they're really a problem child. So I wonder if that, I think the, I think the, the data that you're collecting and your point is accurate. Um, but I would think it's a little more fantasy weighted going back to weight, if that's not too confusing, than NFL success. No, no that's a good point because, I mean, let's, let's say that in most scoring formats, a touchdown is worth 60 yards, whereas right, right. There, there, are, there are people that have looked at, I mean, one is a kind of adjusted yards per attempt, and when you look at something like that, the adjustments that you make for a touchdown is adding – 20 yards. So I think that kind of from another analytical perspective, when you're trying to, to look at the game for how valuable certain things are, a touchdown in people's minds um, who have studied it and how much it's adding in value as far as points value to a team um, is more around 20 yards. So, you know, you could say that it's three times larger in fantasy football than it is. Even looking at the game from another analytical perspective, it would only be worth about 20 yards. Getting beyond the weight and, and looking specifically at at some of these drills that the wide receivers will do. The 40, 40 yard dash you found is maybe not as important for the receivers, but it's the three cone drill we should really be looking at. Yeah. I mean, again, it's something where I think the wide receiver position even more than others, even more than the running back position, because uh, you're probably going to need a particular profile to be a workhorse running back, but you're going to get, you're getting a lot of different types of players who get into um this here so when it's when it's already splitting when the tree is splitting based upon weight it makes sense that the 40 then is not going to be as important as you move further and further down because the guys who are bigger just don't necessarily have to be as fast to be open um it doesn't mean that the 40 time isn't important it's obviously more important for for those receivers who are smaller it just means for those guys if you're fairly agile and you're big that you know, maybe you don't have to be as fast in, uh, from a from a in the forty perspective. You can have you know guys who are running in the four fives, and that's not a that's not really a, a killer if they were a strong producer in college and they're and they're a large white and they're a big guy. If you can make contested catches, obviously, right. If you can make contested catches, and hopefully that's something that shows up in your college production. Um, sure. You know, so sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, it's always difficult. I mean, even someone like Allen Robinson was ran a a really slow 40 at the combine. He ran a much better 40 at his pro day. Um, and he was someone, you know, who had a, a pretty dominant market share of yards and things like that. So he was a really dominant receiver. Um, so I, I think he's probably an example of a guy who didn't run that fast. I mean, guys like Des Bryant don't, I mean, he ran in the four fives. There are plenty of guys who run in the four fives who end up being very, um, Mike Evans ran in the four fives. There's lots of guys who run in the four fives who end up being pretty successful at the next level. It's interesting that you brought up Robinson, though, because he also, just to go to another drill, was really good on the vert, and, you know, especially for a big, you know, over six foot, over 200 pound receiver. And that has translated to his game in the NFL. I mean, especially two years ago when they were doing better things together. But he's, been, he's a go up and get it guy with long arms and size in a 40 plus vert. That's hard to defend, assuming, you know, again, with the, the caveat, assuming you have the ball skills to make the plays in the air. Who are some of the some of the wide receivers you're going to be watching closely coming up this weekend at the combine, Kevin? Well, I mean, I think the number one wide receiver that I mean, this is a guy that I've been digging into a lot recently that I'm 
becoming more and more interested in just based upon his production profile. And that's uh, Juju Smith-Schuster. And the reason I'm interested in him is the, I mean, at least from, from my perspective, the narrative around the film watching on him and the scouting on him is that people are kind of expecting him to be not, not so great as far as athletic measurables are concerned. Um, and if he can just provide kind of baseline athleticism, you know, even if he's, he's probably not going to be a guy who's over 220 pounds. He's probably gonna be somewhere between 210 and 220. If he can run in the four fives, something like that. Um, if he shows decent explosion, um, he doesn't have to have an Allen Robinson type vert or anything like that. But if he, if he shows, you know, let's say average NFL athleticism, then I would be much more excited at him because, uh, I mean, as a freshman, this, he's really young too. I, I, I don't know if a lot of people know that, but you know, he didn't turn 18 until almost after, almost when his freshman year was over. He didn't turn 18 until November 22nd. He didn't turn 19 until almost his, his sophomore year was over. And in that year, he was, you know, he was dominant. He had about 40% of the team's receiving yards, which is a, a really elite number. And now he took a step back last year. So maybe he was hampered, maybe he wasn't. If he has time to rest up and he puts up a good a good 40 time. I mean, he might be a guy that I would put at the top of my board where a lot of people had him last year, but I think he's fallen enough in people's eyes that he's not going to be the first receiver taken most likely. And if that's the case, uh, you know, I think he could be worth that type of value. He's, he's definitely at the top of my list of players. I want to watch this weekend. He's, I agree with a lot of what you said. I think he's a really interesting case. It seems like it's the trendy thing to do right now to hate on him and I think part of the concern actually goes back to what we saw with Laquan Treadwell last year. Just like Juju Treadwell from his freshman year on was a player that was highly ranked in Devi leagues or any rankings you saw of those college players. And then he burned so many people with this with this uh, rookie season um, that was just almost non-existent for him. And I think people are kind of concerned that the same thing could happen with with Juju that. Yes, he, he had that early breakout age. He was really dominant, like you said, as a freshman. Had a solid sophomore season and then dropped off this year. Of course, that entire team dropped off early in the year with some bad quarterback play. Um, so I'm excited to watch Juju. I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think he's all hype. I don't expect, you know, eye-popping numbers like you mentioned. I think just that baseline, like you said, is would be enough to – keep him in in that mid first round range at the very least don't you think there's some usc wide receiver biased going against him too right now yeah absolutely you know if if you look at comparisons i've seen people compare him to Dwayne jarrett and nelson aguilar and marquise lee i I don't want to say that's lazy i mean two players from the same school can certainly remind you of one another but I mean, we're talking, you know, we're talking about different tenures of players, different coaches and, and coaching staffs. And I, I just don't buy it. Just, you know, just because Aguilar stinks doesn't mean Juju stinks. That's <laughs> right, right. kind of how I, I feel about it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of where I fall into. I mean, it's, it's interesting. A concept that I've been trying to, 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 to incorporate more in my analysis. Now, I talked a little bit about market share, and that's kind of the main thing we look at for wide receivers um, is – the share of the receiving yards they have on their particular team. So, but what that's really measuring is how good a receiver is versus uh, his teammates. So when you look at something like USC, I mean, they're really getting top wide receiving prospects every single year, year in and year out. 
Now, some of those guys haven't panned out, but, you know, Aguilar was a five-star prospect coming out of high school. He was a first-round draft pick. Yes, he didn't work out. But you, you can go back a lot of years where SC is just bringing these guys in year in and year out. I mean, Keenan Allen, Marvin Jones, uh, Aguilar, Marquise Lee. And I'm not even sure Marquise Lee is, is that bad. Now, he, he kind of bricked the combine, but he, you know, I'm not even sure he's that bad. He hasn't really been able to get on the field either. So they've had a bunch of guys, but if you flip one of those guys to being a success versus being a failure, all of a sudden you're, you're hearing, oh, you know, there's Keenan Allen, Marvin Jones, and, you know, Nelson Aguilar. This is, a, this is the greatest you know, the school possible, but, but since Aguilar brick, now everyone thinks that it's a poor school. So I think it's more just, just bias based upon that. And um, I mean, that, that sophomore year he had where he was playing most of the year, 18 years old, 40% receiving share is, is one of the best age adjusted seasons, you know, ever really out there. So I, I just think that any discount you can get on him is probably worth it. Ryan, two guys I'm kind of excited about them hearing a lot of buzz and I, and I want to see live and get more opinions on uh, are Carlos Henderson from Louisiana Tech and Chris Goodwin from Penn State. And I don't think either one of these guys are first-round picks or anything, but they may end up being real quality dynasty guys. I'm excited about them. Um, but before we talk about them, I'm excited about something else. I bet you know what it is. Yeah, I bet you do. It's our buddies at Loot Crate. And their theme this month is Primal. That goes up until March 19th. So if you are on a quest for epic gear, housewares, and collectibles, Loot Crate offers an epic range of pop culture items for less than 20 bucks a month. Whether you're shopping for the geek in your life or if you are that geek, Loot Crate is the best surprise you know is coming. Every month there's a different theme and new exclusive items you can only get with Loot Crate. So treat yourself every month and give the gift of geeking out to a friend or a loved one or to yourself. Uh, the roar in the distance is a call. Will you answer it? The month we're going primal and unleashing the beasts of some pop culture's most ferocious franchises. This savagely sweet collection has items from Overwatch, Wolverine, Jurassic Park, and Predator. And as always, our monthly t-shirt and pin. You have until the 19th at 9 o'clock Pacific to subscribe to, remind, to, to receive this month's primal crate. And when the cutoff happens, it's over. So this is what you do. You go to www.lootcrate.com slash Dynasty Blueprint, enter the code Dynasty Blueprint, and you'll save three bucks off an already cheap fee of under 20 bucks a month. That's something you just got to do. So there you have it. Matt, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the name Carlos Henderson. He's, uh, he's, he's a guy who seems to be gaining some traction in the Dynasty community, yeah. even since, uh, you know, since their bowl game, since the college season ended and all it takes for things like that to happen would be like a nice profile on Rotoviz or DLF. What I saw recently was uh, our buddy Matt Harmon call Henderson his, uh, I believe he said he was his wide receiver three in the class. Wow. You know, that, that puts Henderson at the front of people's minds. I'm doing a rookie mock right now with just some folks on Twitter. He went in the first round at the end of the first round. So uh, th- that's all it takes for a guy like that to go from, a sleeper that you might get at the end of the second to maybe a guy who's even being overdrafted in the first round. And, you know, we'll learn more about Henderson this weekend. Some other guys in that range, you mentioned Godwin, Taewon Taylor from Western, uh, Western Kentucky and Zay Jones. Those are all some guys who have been called sleepers, but are also getting quite a bit of attention uh, early in this draft season. Now, I mean, I, maybe talk about Henderson real fast. I mean, he's another guy, he's a smaller guy. So, I think it is probably pretty important that he runs he runs fast. I mean, he's probably a guy, and this is where you're going to have a, 
a divide in the kind of st uh, stats and um, and film crew. I mean, he didn't really do much his first couple of years, and then he had pretty eye popping numbers last year. And this is something where you know, on a share basis, it looks a little bit less impressive than it does on just a raw basis. I mean, I had 1,500 yards receiving, but, you know, they threw for more than 5,000 as a team. Um, and he didn't even lead his team in receiving yards. So it's one of those things where I think he'll probably be faded in some stats guys' minds. But if he can run a really fast 40, he gets in the right situation, you know, who, who knows what can happen. And, of course, his teammate is in this draft class as well who did lead the team in receiving. That's uh, Trent Taylor, I believe. He's even even more undersized, so not getting quite the attention that, that Henderson is. Kevin, let's finish up with the tight end position. Uh, and, and like the running backs, you found that the 40-yard dash is, is huge for them. Yeah, I mean, that's probably uh... – there's a little bit of a different of a different angle to wide receiver versus tight end. I mean, for wide receivers, I found that the the combine just generally is not that important, um, and for tight ends, it is. And I think the biggest differentiation there is, you know, again, kind of like what Matt was talking about with what's important or what's not important. If we're talking about fantasy football, we're talking about guys who are going to be out there catching the ball, so it's going to skew uh, uh, value towards guys who are more athletic who can get down the field. Um, or catching passes, and, and those are guys are going to be quite a bit faster. And the biggest differentiation there is is the forty time. So that's that's really showing which guys are are good or not. I mean, other analysis, the guys uh, like John Moore have done in the past have shown how agility and three cone is fairly important. Uh, and there's some evidence, although not not a whole lot, that the bench press is actually somewhat important for a tight end, where you don't find that showing a lot of importance. It's actually the least important drill across the board if you look at all the different positions, but it does show something in the tight end. And I'm wondering if that has something to do with the fact of maybe they can stay on the field a bit more if they can also provide uh, blocking. Just my take real, real quick. I don't think I've ever mentioned it on this podcast about the bench press and using it as a tool to evaluate players. A strength coach that I was around quite a bit and, you know, when I was with teams had a really strong opinion that the way they do the bench is not really an indication of strength at all, especially football strength. You know, that if you think about how football's played, there's a play that lasts for five or six seconds, the whistle blows, you relax for 20 or 30 seconds, and then you have another burst of energy again. You know, that uh, really what you need is rest, power, rest, power, rest, power, where when the bench press is really more of an endurance situation, you know, that – if you're the strongest guy there, that doesn't mean that you can do the most reps. And obviously, if you have long arms, that really hurts you. And that could really apply to tight ends because you want tight ends with long arms. But if they have to push the bar farther than the guard with the short, stumpy arms, I mean, it's it doesn't translate, you know. So um, I, I look at more of an endurance contest. And ideally, what you do is you put a lot more more weight on the bar and have them just see – how many, you know, how, how, what's the most you could do one rep of, but then you have people tearing muscles left and right and that doesn't work. Kevin, going back to the 40, what, what's the time? What's that mark we should be looking at for tight ends? Well, for, for tight ends, um, it's, you know, like everything else, it, it depends. But what I, what, what I found is being the, the split is right about at that four, seven mark. So if you can come in below that, that's going to give you a much higher, uh, chance of being a top tight end from a fantasy perspective. 
of course, these are things you got to weight adjust and, and think about in times like that because you don't necessarily have to be a blazer at the position. Uh, I mean, uh, Gronk wasn't wasn't you know a blazer or anything like that. Uh, although you've had guys like Greg Olson who was extremely fast. Um, you know, Jimmy Graham was insanely fast for 260 pounds. So I, I think I think if you can get below four seven, you're you're you have the athleticism that's that's re- requisite to be to be strong in that position. And even further down, I mentioned that bench actually showed up a little bit, which was interesting. And that's actually been confirmed. There's another analysis by um, but by the the Harvard Sports Analysis Collective where they found bench being somewhat significant for tight ends. So I was surprised there. As you go down further, I found uh, the vertical jump being the next most important once you screen for 40 and maybe strengthen if you're getting above that 34 mark, which might have just something to do with the fact that a lot of you're going to have a lot of contested catches for, for the tight end position too. And you really, you know, you really need touchdowns here. And if we thought touchdowns were overvalued for, for wide receivers, I mean, they're a much bigger portion, especially in standard leagues for tight ends. And it's something where if you don't have a guy catching touchdowns, um, it's really difficult to have a top tight end. We saw across the really across the board that touchdowns and and fantasy scoring overall was was down for the tight end position this year. Um, of course, a little bit of that has to do with the injury to Gronk and really injuries across you know across the top tight ends. Uh, Jordan Reed missed time. Tyler Eifert missed time. Uh, I've I've said before that dynasty owners have viewed this running back class as kind of the savior that that these running backs are going to come in, they're going to really change the face of so many teams and the face of fantasy teams. But I think the same thing could be said with tight ends. This, this group is the deepest that I can remember and the talent that we're seeing, you know, I think it really could impact. We could see three or four of these guys in, as top 12 tight ends in the next few years. I a hundred percent agree. I mean, uh, this is the best tight end class I've seen in a long time. Cause not only is it really strong with the top two, but it's deep. I mean, I think you're going to get a quality tight end the third, fourth round of the NFL draft. Um, two guys I'm kind of excited to see what they end up doing at the Combine um, are very different styles. You know, they're smaller school dudes. Gerald Everett from South Alabama. He's 6'3-ish, like, you know, hoping, you know, in the 230 range. And then Michael Roberts, who's 6'4-ish, he's from Toledo, and he's going to be one of the heavier guys there. But – I is either one going to run well, do you think? I mean, I feel like Everett has to run extremely well to keep any kind of stock going. I'm, I'm not really sure what to expect from these guys, but I, I've seen Everett mocked as, as a potential first-round NFL draft yeah. pick, which shocked me, but uh, again goes back to the talent and the depth as well of this tight end group. Uh, Kevin, any specific guys you're looking for from the tight end position? Uh, I mean, I don't know about specifically. Obviously, I'm going to be looking at, uh, you know, the, the top guys and your Howard, your uh, Njoku, all those guys. Um, just because, I, I mean, we'll see where they end up going. But there's a lot. There's some buzz out there that they're going to end up going uh, in the in the top. Maybe one of them could go in the top half of the first round. Uh, maybe both of them could go in the in the first round. So, I, I think it's interesting. I mean. Both guys, I think, have to run pretty well. They're not going to be particularly big. Uh, I think they're going to be a 240, 250 range. Uh, from what I'm hearing, they block pretty well. So, I mean, I'd like to see them run a pretty fast 40. I mean, and uh, I do think there's always a concern, like I mentioned, on the touchdowns. I mean, a perfect example of someone who ran really well, um, like Ebron ran pretty well at the Combine, uh, you know, 250 pounds. I think he ran a 4.6, something like that. He, he, he showed some athletic measurables, but his one knock coming out 
of school was that he didn't catch a lot of touchdowns. And that has definitely been the case in the NFL. Um, so you, you, you got to hope for these guys that, that these guys are touchdown scorers. And I think they've been okay, but, but no one's really been as dominant as some guys we've seen in the past. Um, obviously, we're not going to have another Gronk for, for a long time, but, but someone like that as far as their ability to score at the collegiate level. Ryan, quick question for you on tight ends. And you're on top of this much more than I am, but for dynasty rookie drafts, could you see either one of these top two tight ends being a first-round pick? Yeah, I mean, I think I think they both could be, honestly. Yeah. And as much as I like both of these guys, I think they're both super talented. Uh, like Kevin said, if they go in the first round of the NFL draft, I think they could end up in the first round of dynasty rookie drafts as well. I won't be taking them there. Uh, I'd rather take a shot on a receiver or running back, even if we're talking about a second-tier receiver or, or a back. I mean, we've, we've seen the production or the lack of production from young tight ends across the league. Uh, Hunter Henry was super impressive last year, but also kind of a fluke compared to what we have seen in, in previous years. So I'd rather buy those guys this time next year for a second-round pick than, than spend a first-rounder on them right now. Yeah, I think I think I'm totally in agreement. It's a no, it's notorious for a slow starting uh, position. Also, I mean that changes somewhat. But guys like Hunter Henry are are more the uh, you know the exception than the rule when it comes to guys coming out and being successful right out of the gates. And if you just look at the top tight ends uh, last year, I mean it's it's kind of littered with guys that weren't that high of draft picks. You know, guys like, you know, Cameron Brait or Delaney Walker or Rudolph or, I mean, even Travis Kelsey, um, that, you know, you could have bought them much later than initially as part of a rookie draft for a lot cheaper than what they ended up being. And again, going back to touchdowns, it just means you're going to be more quarterback dependent, I think, also, because uh, you need, because, you know, quarterbacks, certain quarterbacks are just not going to have a high enough touchdown percentage. Um, no matter who their tight end is, it's, it's just not going to matter. So it's, it's not not a surprise that you know while Gronk is great, you know guys like Gronk and Jimmy Graham when he was back with Drew Brees and others were the top guys out there and putting up those unbelievable seasons. And it's not independent of the quarterback position. I just think if I'm sitting there at one ten or one eleven, and both these tight ends are on the board, I guarantee one of the running backs in this class I would rather have. You know, for for fantasy reasons. Right, I agree. Um, And and I wanted to go back to touchdowns as well, Kevin. A lot of people, it seems like, have O.J. Howard as as the far and away top tight end uh, for fantasy purposes, but he was not a prolific touchdown scorer at all um, at Alabama. He, you know, we all remember he scored two in the title game two years ago, and that doubled his, his career tight end production at that point. I think he scored three this past year. So, so what, I guess seven for a career, even though he was, I don't know if he started his freshman year, but he's, he certainly got plenty of playing time early and, and obviously later in his, his Alabama career. So, I, I mean, I know, I know Alabama has a lot of mouths to feed and, and lots of options when it comes to scoring touchdowns, but still that's, I don't want to call that a red flag, but it is a little bit of a concern for me. And I think uh, Njoku and, and even Evan Ingram, I, I view those three guys as, as basically the same tier which is another reason I'm probably not going to spend a first rounder on them. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a great point. Obviously it wasn't the most prolific uh, passing attack there, but still, you know, 26 touchdowns. And like you mentioned, Howard only got three of those, of those touchdowns. So I, I, I mean, I think it's, I think it is a red flag. I mean, you never, red flags don't necessarily translate 
into you know 100% failure rate or something like that. But it's something to watch out for. If you play 15 games and you only score three touchdowns, uh, that's 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 not very good. And not to mention, I mean, I know it's easy to say, well, he played at Bama and they got most of their touchdowns on the ground, or there's so many mouths to feed, but having too much talent around you to me is not exactly a negative, <laughs> you know, and like usually it could be quite helpful as a, for a player and not to mention how many Bama games was he a part of where they won 48 to seven, you know what I mean? And he didn't end up in the end zone. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think I would agree there. I mean, I think having a lot of talent around you is important context when you're looking at a guy who maybe who maybe has very good statistics, but he in fact, you know, could have been elite when you have these situations like back with the Clemson wide receivers where you had, you know, Watkins and Hopkins and then, you know, right. things like that, or, you know, Landry and Odell Beckham on the same team, something like that. I mean, individually, those guys would have been that much better if they weren't there. But I don't think it, it can turn someone who's putting in subpar performance into an elite performer. Um, you, should, you should at least be, be fairly strong there. Now, touchdowns are fluky, but for, for Howard, you know, it's not just this year that's a touchdown problem. It's, it's been his entire career. So uh, I, I think, it's, I think it, it definitely is an issue. And, I mean, I wouldn't look to use a pick on him. Uh, in, in the first round, I mean, I prefer running backs. I especially prefer running backs in dynasty because they they can they can perform really well right out of the box. So you're more likely to get uh, a pretty sharp appreciation and value from one of those guys too. Although, I mean, there's some landing spots and like the Giants come to mind that the dynasty community will go crazy if one of these two land there. Oh, maybe yeah, not definitely. right, not maybe not rightfully so, but it, they could inflate their stock. Yeah, no, no, that that, that definitely won't inflate. I, mean, I guess it all depends if you're making that that pick before or or after the draft. Um, yeah, I, I, especially with Beckham there, I'm just not sure how much how much there's going to be to to go around for some others. I mean, they've already spent a lot there. I mean, they spent you know Beckham a first rounder, Shepard in the early second. Um, it'd be interesting if they spent even more on receiving weapons. Well, Kevin, you have been uh, been an awesome guest today. I've taken a ton of notes that I will be referring to as I watch the Combine this weekend. So uh, thank you for joining us, and, and let all our listeners know where they can find your work. Yeah, you know, I haven't, haven't been really digging it into so far this year, but I have all this stuff on Rotoviz from last year. Uh, I was also writing for, for PFF Fantasy last year, so I have some stuff there where – um, it's looking at it not uh, on these on these tree basis, but putting it through some other models and bring it together for success rates, things like that. So that's stuff I'm going to be refreshing this year with this year's class. And hopefully I'm going to add this additional element that I mentioned before, which is really trying to incorporate the quality of teammates into this analysis. And I have a feeling it's going to give a boost to, like I mentioned, uh, Smith Schuster and maybe some other guys who play on these these stacked teams versus someone like, you know, Corey Davis, who who looks pretty good, but he didn't play with near the same level of competition. So hopefully in the next couple of months, you'll, you'll see a, an article or two for me coming out on Rotoviz. All right. Thanks again to Kevin. We'll be back next week with more Dynasty Blueprint. <laughs>